0: Welcome to Raiders of the Lost podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. In this episode, we discuss Reservoir Dogs. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. Anthony here, and this is James. Today, we're going to be talking about... Quentin Tarantino's directorial debut, Reservoir Dogs, this came out in 1992 on IMDb. It is an 8.3. It's a top-rated movie at number 91 on that list. Rotten Tomatoes has this at 92% fresh critic score and 94% audience score. And this is definitely one of the most impressive debuts of all time. Uh, It's got to be top 10. You know, Chris Nolan's Memento, I think, was a great debut after following for making a real film. Um, Like Stanley Kubrick, I mean, um, Citizen Kane, for Orson Welles, was a, a groundbreaking first film. But I think you can, can really compare it to Citizen Kane because of its influence on movies and cinema and how it changed what people wanted to see. I think that this film tapped into like a different kind of genre, a subgenre that he calls it, of like violence that people were actually craving and they weren't really aware of it in America. And sort of a lot like uh, Scorsese's and Mean Streets, because Mean Streets mm. and Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs, they show all the the little te- the trademarks and the the style of these great directors, and how even in their first films, like this is a Tarantino movie, this is a Scorsese movie. All of his movies have this tone, have this feeling. And you know, Reservoir Dogs. You know, I, th- I don't think American cinema was ready for this kind of movie. It was first reaction was not great. Box office was under three million on a one point two million dollar budget. But this movie is just cool 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 the initial reviews some of them were bad so this is one from the wall street journal the only thing mr tarantino spells out is the violence and then This movie isn't really about anything. And then the Daily News, it's just a flashy, stylistically daring exercise in cinematic mayhem. So a lot of people didn't understand this movie. And it's kind of like the Rolling, Rolling Stone when they said Nirvana was not that good when they first released their album. Then obviously they've been on the cover of that magazine so many times. I really don't see how you can call this movie flashy because it's very minimalist filmmaking. The action is flashy. I guess so, but it's not even that much action. I think that's, that's the great this, thing about it. This, sometimes movie critics are just so silly in just the things so they come up with. They're just looking for a headline for people to read in the op- on the top of their of their article. And obviously, people have realized the brilliance of Tarantino. And I'm sure I don't know what the numbers are, but this had to have been a big hit on VHS rentals in word of mouth because I'm sure. because at Pulp Fiction, a lot of people looking back they think Reservoir Dogs did it for him. It didn't. Like you just. Um, Displayed like it was not successful Or critically well received Pulp Fiction put him on the map in a huge way You know he won best director at Cannes And I believe it won the Palme d'Or So Reservoir Dogs was a stepping stone But in retrospect People obviously have seen how brilliant Of a debut it is Now I don't put it in my top 3 Of Tarantino movies Uh, My top 3 is uh, Inglorious Kill Bill and Pulp Fiction Are my top 3 And it might not—Reservoir Dogs might not even be in my top five because of how incredible his filmmaking became later in his career because this is very simple filmmaking. Um, and I'm talking production camera work. Very, obviously, he's working with a very low budget, but when you look at things like Django and Inglorious Bastards and even The Hateful Eight, just the, the sheer filmmaking and the talent he has in his productions now on a massive scale is just so impressive. And it's no very few directors do what he has been doing, but it's so raw. It's like it's like your favorite band's first album. It's like Green Day's Dookie. It's like it's so good. Like I don't think they've ever made an album as good as that before. But if you're a huge fan of Tarantino, like we are, we're doing a giveaway in this episode. So to enter this contest, you'll be able to win a poster of a Quentin Tarantino movie from our sponsor, MoviePosters.com. Just leave a comment on the YouTube version of this. Reservoir Dogs episode, and that's it. And the winner will get a free Tarantino movie poster of the movie of your choice. Now, you said something earlier. He's, you, you're like, it's cool. You know, this movie cool, is cool, cool. cool. I said it three times, yeah, all right? That's part of... <laughs> <laughs> that is what is part of the tone of Tarantino. When people saw his films, they're like, oh, man, this is like the coolest thing I've ever seen, whether it be Pulp Fiction or this or maybe a later film. And it's something that hadn't been done in American cinema... And I think Tarantino he understood even from the uh, from the get go how important tone is, and how important style is to the film. And this movie it has a lot of gritty realism and rawness, but it is a little uh, it's, it has unrealistic moments and an unrealistic idea, but it's so cool that it makes up for it. So I mean, if you t- if you look at the idea of a bank robbery and having five guys rob a jewelry store, I mean and they're all wearing the same suits, that's not very smart if you wanna be, commit a crime because people will be able to see you. Uh, if like witnesses will recognize you and then if like the police are after you, they'll look, oh look, five guys in suits. So it's not, so, it's not super practical. But it's cool. That's what I'm saying, but it's cool. <laughs> he understood that the, the image of these guys walking down the street during that t- title credits, wearing these cool suits, that's what works and that's what really made it work. Cause if these guys were wearing what on uh, what criminals would really wear? Just like normal clothes, Are blending you a criminal? in. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> wear... What about in the town? They're wearing nurse outfits. Yeah, but that they're hiding. They're just. Yeah, they're know, hiding, and they just, just take them off. Yeah. So, but if they were just wearing normal criminal outfits, you wouldn't. That wouldn't have that powerful imagery. But them in the black and white suits, walking and strutting to that song, that's what really. Bow exactly that's what created the tone for tarantino's film it's that's what did it so he understood i'm gonna make something super cool and people are gonna love it and the black suits worn by the dogs are a tribute to the john woo action movie a better tomorrow 2 which came out in 1987. and reservoir dogs i think i would put it in my top five but this movie changed cinema forever you know it's a genius film genius concept brilliant script and the nonlinear story structure wasn't really something we'd ever seen on popular culture and cinema in Hollywood, but it keeps the film exciting. It builds momentum constantly. You know, we, we go from the diner opening scene directly to credits are rolling, and we hear Mr. Orange in the back of the car bleeding out and screaming in pain, and then we cut to him with a gunshot in his belly in the back of the car while Mr. White's driving. So this nonlinear story structure, which became so famous in Pulp Fiction, it allows for these great big reveals. A ton of information is revealed or characters are revealed to them. And it's also really important because we've talked about this um, when we did, I think, a Chris Nolan episode or or another Tarantino episode where we're we're talking about how it's so important because if you tell this story linearly – you know, it starts with... Prestige, we were Yeah, about. the prestige. It yeah. starts with Mr. Orange being recruited for undercover work and then getting in the gang. And then the movie is like 65 minutes in the warehouse because the more majority of this movie takes place in that warehouse because it's such a low budget. And Tarantino is very clever. He's like, I'm going to do all, most of the work, all the dialogue is going on in the warehouse. But I'm going to intercut that with the different things that are going on with the story for character reveals and everything. And so if if you do it linearly, it's a little boring and loses all of its momentum by the time you're halfway through the warehouse. He under- that's what makes him so special is because he thinks outside the box where ninety nine out of a hundred screenwriters would do it in a traditional way, but for him he's like, I'm gonna do it my way. I want the most interesting moments to be the first things you see. We have this amazing diner scene, and then the lead character is shot in the back of a car. Now that catches the audience's attention more than anything, as opposed to, like you said, the recruitment, the gathering of the job. And then, you know, if if it was traditionally written The bank robbery would happen like 30 minutes in, and then they would get to the safe house afterwards. So then that's like a completely different movie. And if it was traditionally written, you would show the heist. Exactly. That's the great thing about Reservoir Dogs. It's a heist movie with no heist that you see. You see the aftermath of the heist. You see the before of the undercover cop getting infiltrated into the gang, but you don't actually see the heist which is really great. But before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com where you get awesome perks like our podcast schedule. So you would have known that Reservoir Dogs was posting today. (laughs) Personalized videos, Patreon shout outs. We also do monthly... Zoom calls that the Godfather tier and I Drink Your Milkshake tier have access to as well as an extra bonus episode for Godfather tier. We just launched our podcast masterclass online course. So for anyone who wants to start a podcast or wants to improve their current podcast, our 22 chapter 46 video lesson course will give you all of our secrets behind the scenes of our show so that you can get the success that we have found over the last year and a half. The link is podcastmasterclass.teachable.com or just go to our website, raidersofthelostpodcast.com. It's right there on the home page. You can also. Also see our sources of content, our merch, our custom movie posters. Follow, subscribe wherever you're listening. Thanks for tuning in. Hit the notification bell and let's get back into Reservoir Dogs. And the non- the non-linear story structure, uh, bouncing around timelines, is typical for a Tarantino movie. Now that we know, obviously, it was. It's not the first time it was ever done, but and when this movie came out, it was pretty revolutionary. But also, what really makes him special is his ability to write dialogue. You know him and. Aaron Sorkin are like the best writers of dialogue probably ever and but they're very different which is really cool what what Tarantino what he does with his writing and it's gotten more mature and nuanced now but in his early days his his dialogue the reason why people loved it so much and gravitated to it so much was because it felt like real dialogue it's not like typical movie dialogue oftentimes dialogue and scripts traditionally drives the plot forward so writers have to make a scene happen so they figure out how to have the people talk to make the scene happen or make an action happen or make go to point a to point b and so there it has a motivation behind the dialogue but what tarantino was like writing his movies he's like i just want my characters to sound like real people and yeah cuz they know they're in yeah. a car doing this thing. It's not it's internal motivation, yeah. you know what I mean? Exactly. And like probably the most famous instance is um Jules and Vincent and talking in the car in the opening of Pulp Fiction, you know, talking about Amsterdam and then the Royale Cheese just like and then we find out they're hitman foot massage. Yeah. So that's and then he on the foot fucking master. He understood that audiences had never seen that in American cinema just people talking like people and that opening diner scene is so strong we start with this five-minute great opening scene where first we're talking about the Madonna song and then a few other actors and, and songs. And what he does with the dialogue is when people converse, they talk about popular culture. They'll mention, like, a movie they saw or a song they like or anything. And so he brings that into his writing. And what this movie has is so many pop culture references. I made a list of just a bunch of them. So did I, man. Nice. I'm gonna, I'll read my list first and see if you if I missed anything. So characters in this movie, they reference Marlon Brando, Madonna's Like a Virgin, The Lost Boys, The Great Escape, Fantastic Four, The Thing, Silver Surfer, Charles Bronson a couple of times, Doris Day, and Francis, Pam Greer, John Holmes, Lee Marvin, Donald Trump, Honey West, and Don John Dillinger, as well as um, several songs. And it, it makes you feel like... This is just people having conversations And also the Silver Surfer poster In Mr. Orange's apartment That's yeah, another yeah. pop culture reference And also the line where Mr. White goes to Mr. Orange if you, kill me in a, if you kill me in a dream You better wake up and apologize That's kind of a loose ad-lib of a line From Do the Right Thing Which is something like If you beat me up while you're asleep You better wake up and apologize Or something mm-hmm. like that And the dialogue is razor sharp In Tarantino's movies That's one of the reasons why his characters Are so fascinating Because like you said they sounds like real people talking It sounds authentic his characters are so great however this movie has a ton of offensive language like a, a lot of his movies but it has matured since then but this, this movie you know hasn't completely aged well with the things that are said and This dialogue in Reservoir Dogs is not politically correct. Some lines do not age well. Tarantino is all about authenticity to creating real characters and writes dialogue to how they talk. That's his specialty. You know, we're not saying that's okay for the characters to say the things that they say in Reservoir Dogs, but these characters are cold-blooded killers. They are criminals, meaning they say the worst things possible to people they know. They say these things because they're bad people. Tarantino's not saying that people should talk like this or that it's common to talk like this. Tarantino's saying that these horrible people, these cold-blooded murderers, thieves and killers they say horrible things because they are the worst kind of people they're not heroes they're murderers so that's how people like that would talk so that's a hundred percent correct because you you can fully understand why if if people watch this movie they can just completely be offended by some of the language because it is offensive but also you're gonna look at it at the uh, perspective of these characters are like you said the worst people imaginable so they wouldn't be nice they wouldn't be personable. They'd be horrible. They'd yeah. be racist. They'd yeah. be homophobic. They'd yeah. be misogynist, and that's what Tarantino makes them. Yeah, because it's not like these are just normal people. These are, like you said, terrible criminals. They do. They've done time. They kill. They'll kill someone without hesitation if they want to. And a couple of them, like uh, Blondie, is a complete psycho. So uh, it's it's important to understand that these are terrible people, and it's not being glorified. He's just painting an accurate portrait of what terrible people would speak like. And some other trademarks of Tarantino, obviously his super unique and authentic characters in every one of his movies. We love all of his characters. They're so fascinating. Even though we're talking about how horribly these guys are, sometimes you're like rooting for them. Like, oh, these guys are so cool. Mr. White's the man, even though he's a cold-blooded killer. I love this guy. And also great music. You know, this is the first movie Tarantino made, and the importance of the music he selected was just its essential to creating the tone. I mean, a Little Green Bag at the beginning of the film is just such a fun Opening song to get the tone of the film going And then Stuck in the Middle of You With Mr. Mister Blonde During the torture scene That is one of the most iconic scenes in cinema In the last 50 years And that song is one of the reasons why That song um, cost uh, a major portion of the budget To use for the rights to And he planned that song He always had it in mind When he was writing the script and he understood like if we get this song, we can't do that much music. That's why it has less music than another than other Tarantino movies like Pulp Fiction because they only they only had what a one point five you said million if that. And and the rights to a very popular song like that, you're gonna have to shell out at least a hundred k, maybe even more, to get the rights to to license that song. So he's like, okay, if I have to use only a couple of songs, I'm gonna use these a couple of unheard people songs that nobody knows. But I want this big song because I know it's perfect for this scene, it, and it will really make the movie work in a lot of ways. That's like halfway through the film, and when that scene happens, it's right before the ultra violence. You see, you see some blood and stuff, but like this is like where the the movie takes a big turn into the torture scene, where you're seeing graphic gore and just despicable violence, and that's when the movie just like. Goes full tilt into that, and so it's an important moment for the movie. And again, it's a very low budget, but it was originally it was originally a thirty thousand dollar budget. You know, Tarantino was going to shoot this on a sixteen millimeter camera. He was going to make it with just a bunch of his friends. Um, including, including his po- his uh, producing partner Lawrence Bender, who was going to play nice guy Eddie. So him and his friends are going to go play play all the characters and everything. But then Tarantino received a phone call from Harvey Keitel asking if he could not only be in the film but if he could produce it because he had gotten involved via the wife of Bender's acting class teacher, who managed to get a copy of the script to him. And Keitel's involvement helped raise the budget to about one point five million dollars because investors were like, "All right, Harvey Keitel is a big name," and even. Even Tim Roth was a good name, but he wasn't signed on yet. But Harvey Keitel's involvement got them that budget. Yeah, Keitel's the reason why Reservoir Dogs... Was made into the, what it is because if it was made on thirty thousand dollars, maybe no one would ever seen it. But I yeah. mean, it could have been like a fault, like following like to Chris Nolan because he made that on ten thousand dollars that got him some recognition at film festivals and stuff like that. So maybe that's what would have happened. Yeah, it could have it could have been like a cult movie that film lovers enjoyed years later, and that could have been like a stepping stone to him making a another movie. But it probably it wouldn't have been the iconic film that it is today. So you got to thank Harvey Keitel for you know taking a, a chance on on Tarantino and it's a great script and it's he wrote this in true romance um i'm not sure which one he wrote first but he was trying to sell them um around hollywood and he knew he knew a few insiders because of working at the video store everyone knows the story that he worked at a video store and so he, he had these scripts and then the way like that script got to Keitel, like you said it was uh, an acting teacher it, it's it, he was just passing him passing the screenplays to people and you know, w- True Romance and Reservoir Dogs eventually found their way to Tony Scott, and Tony Scott wanted to make both of them himself. And then Tarantino said, "You can make True Romance and keep- give me Reservoir Dogs." And then, so Tarantino, he got fifty k from selling True Romance to Tony Scott, and so that that's what gave him the the or- original money to make his original vision of thirty thousand dollars with sixteen mil was because he was able to sell True um, True Romance to Tony Scott. But I like how he stuck to his guns. He's like. Not going for the money, he's like, take take true romance, it's good, but it's not reservoir dogs. Yeah. <laughs> he held on he held on to that one because he knew it was special. It was. And I'm sure he had such a great vision for it. And one point five million dollars is still a very a sizable. It's still modest. Yeah, it's very yeah. low. And so the budget wouldn't cover a lot of things. For example, it wouldn't cover police assistance for traffic control. So the scene where Steve Buscemi is running down that street, he forces that woman out of her car and drives off in it. He could only do it when the traffic greens traffic lights were green. You know, they had to <laughs> wait for the lights to turn green. Mr. Orange's apartment was the upstairs. To the warehouse where most of the movie takes place, the filmmakers redecorated to look like an apartment in order to save money on finding a real apartment. And the cool thing about this movie, actually we've seen this movie, what, like 20 times? Yeah. And we were watching it the other night just to catch up on it with our with our roommates and some and a friend and it was it was a lot of fun to watch obviously but we're watching it and we're watching when Buscemi's running down that street after we cut to him cut to post heist he's got the diamonds and he's being chased by those three police officers this entire and then we realize this entire movie was filmed in our neighborhood in Highland Park in Los Angeles and that street is York Boulevard we live right near it and then the shootout happens at this coffee shop that I've been to a thousand times it's, <laughs> it's absolutely insane it's changed so much obviously because this is Highland Park 1992 but this movie is all over the place if you no L A. If you know Highland Park, York Boulevard, Figueroa, so it was really surreal to watch. I can't believe I never picked up on it before. But yeah. when he was shooting the gun, I was like, "That's where. That's we, York Boulevard." We all, we all freaked out. I've yeah. literally driven through these through these exteriors and walked through these exteriors a million times. I've yeah. lived, we've lived in Highland Park for four or five years, something like that. Yeah, and I never noticed it until watching it the other night. It was crazy. In in this the location where Tim Roth gets shot by the woman in her car. That's right down the street from us as well, and I've driven past that intersection countless times. The metro, yeah, the it's, metro it's rail, unbelievable. So actually, when this episode this is posting on a Monday, so today I'm gonna take some photos of the shots that I'm talking about. So if you go on an Instagram, on our Instagram, I'll post uh, the shots from the movie, and I'll take a photo with my my, my camera at what it looks like today because it's crazy. You know, it- when he's when Mr. Pink is running down that sidewalk, that is. I've I've done we, that. I do I did that yesterday. How many times have we walked down that street together? Probably ten thousand times. <laughs> Not ten thousand, but a thousand times. A thousand times. 1, times yeah. Easy. Yeah. That's literally. Half half a mile from our house, especially because lockdown, we did it every day yeah, during lockdown. Going on lots yeah. of, lots of strolls to get some coffee, yeah. support local businesses. But it's really cool and surreal. And and obviously there are a lot of movies like Nightcrawler is another one where it's shot all over LA. Yeah, and stuff but like it's that. different in LA. Like in the like you see parts of the city all over, like in Nightcrawler. But like to be like a whole movie was shot in our neighborhood. That's what was really cool. Yeah. I have never experienced that before. And the warehouse is right down the street yeah. too, where the the whole movie was filmed. It's like a couple blocks away, so it's freaking crazy. Yeah, like I, I was I, watching. them. I screamed like, "That's Baltimore Street! <laughs> that's York Boulevard!" <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. But um, I can't wait to see what that uh that photo thing. Yeah, do. so I'll do a, I'll do yeah. a few of them. So again, go on our Instagram on the day this is posted. And I'll uh-huh. post that. stuff. I can't wait to see that. But in terms of the low budget. That would make a lot of sense not being able to get uh, like permits and cops to help because that would make sense for all the handheld shot outside. There's a lot of handheld shots yeah. outside and Tarantino does not like handheld. So you can tell he was using it when he had to. So that makes total sense for most of those scenes being shaky camera. And again, think to think to the shot, the sets and the amount of time spent in these specific sets. The warehouse is the vast majority of the movie. And then, just like these other little short scenes, like in Joe's office, there's that long scene in Joe's office with nice guy Eddie and Mister Mister Blonde. That's like a seven minute scene. That's yeah. just one other location, and this is only an hour forty five minute movie. So it's very smart filmmaking, but it's also guerrilla style in a way. Even though it's not thirty thousand, still kind of guerrilla style. Yeah, and Mister Orange's apartment, it wasn't an apartment. It was the second story of the warehouse. I don't think Anthony was listening to. Oh, me. oh you said that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> He's used How to talking. tell when the hosts start paying attention? You talk so fast, I can never keep up. <laughs> <laughs> but they actually—oh, here's another thing for the budget. Um, Michael Madsen's car, um, Blondie's car, the that, Cadillac—that was Michael Madsen's real car. Oh, that's cool. He just brought it to set because they couldn't afford one. And I also—I also read that Madsen, Mazdin in and uh, the the guy who plays the cop. He wanted to actually be put in the trunk, so they actually he put him in his trunk, and he went and got like Taco Bell to like get into character <laughs> himself, so that they both could get into character That's for That's amazing. Scene. And he also bought his own soda for the warehouse ooh, scene. Ooh, nice! So he splurged it, out of his own. Was pocket. that an In and Out cup back no, then? Maybe I don't, I don't maybe think so. Maybe twenty, maybe thirty years ago. It, it would have had the the palm, the palm trees on it. I'll have to look I'm up pretty what In and Out cups looked like back then. But another thing for the budget was most of the clothing. I think all the clothing actually was was just people's clothing from from the cast. Except for the suits. Harvey Keitel wore his own suit, but the costume designer gave the suits to Tarantino for free. It was the designer of the clothing brand. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because they, it was like free marketing for them. So they were like, yeah, let's, ha- let's gift them the suits. But all the actors otherwise wore their own clothes, and uh, especially Chris Penn, his his. Uh, tracksuit, the Windbreaker tracksuit the 90s From the nineties, man. man. Those are the best. That was his personal one. And Chris Penn, by the way, he's a very talented actor. He he died very young um in the nineties, I believe, from a uh, um, heroin overdose. Sean Penn's brother. Yeah, Sean Penn's brother. He he was only in a few movies, but he definitely had the talent that Sean Penn had. He would have had a, a very successful career If he didn't go down that bad path, well, he was acting with like top dogs of his age group. I mean, he was in movies like with obviously with like Tom Cruise and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And obviously, working on Reservoir Dogs would have only propelled him even more. He was in true romance, if you remember. So he was, he probably would have had an epic career for sure. Yeah. So it's too, it's very sad for like an actor like that with so much potential to to pass away so young. And he, yeah, he definitely has one of the best performances in the entire movie yeah. as well. But the nineties was tough for actors. You know, these young, successful actors. The eighties and nineties was difficult. It was easy to fall in with the wrong crowd and easy to get, you know, addicted to like River Phoenix, there's, there's so many young actors, the Coreys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Coreys who were who were so successful so early that they just fell into the into the wrong crowd. From Terminator, yeah, too. yeah, exactly. Edward Furlong. Yeah. So he, there was a lot of them back then. I think nowadays, um, young actors have uh, a lot more support behind them in terms of support groups and are much more mature. I think when they're working younger. Now Tarantino, as great of a filmmaker he as he is, and has always been, he wanted to be an actor. That was like his biggest dream, and he also wanted to be like like Elvis. Uh, Tarantino was actually like an Elvis impersonator when he was in his twenties, and he would go to uh, like parties as Elvis. And then there's a talk show, I can't remember what show it was. I might have been m- might have been Ellen if she had a talk show back then, or maybe someone else. But they had on like twenty Elvis impersonators to do a performance. Um, and he is in the group of Elvis impersonators dancing to an Elvis song, dressed up as Elvis. And that's why, you know, uh, Christian Slater's character in True Romance is so obsessed with Elvis because Tarantino was obsessed with him as well. And he wanted to be an actor. Uh, ultimately, it didn't work out. You know, not everyone is, has the talent of acting and natural ability, but he's clearly the, one of the most talented writers of all time. So nothing against that. But he actually wanted to play Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi's character. He wrote it for himself to play. And so his intention was it was gonna be him and Harvey Keitel as like and Tim Roth as like the, the three main leads of the movie. But Steve Buscemi auditioned and Tarantino told him, like, this is I wrote this role for myself. Like I am I'm, I'm playing Mr. Pink, but if you can blow me away with your audition, maybe I'll give you the shot to play the role. And Buscemi, he's so young in this role. You could see how talented he is. He just knocked the audition out of the park. And was just perfect as Mr. Pink. And I can't think of anyone else playing that role. I think that out of all the great cast in this film, I think that Steve Buscemi is the strongest character portrayed. Yeah, probably. And not that Tarantino's not a good actor. He's solid. You know, he's fine as Mr. Brown. He's really good actually in from Dust, Dust to yeah. Robert Rodriguez's yeah. movie. That movie he's he's like plays a sociopath killer like really well. I think he's really good in that for So sure. I think in specific roles he can pull it off. Like him putting himself in Django is like, All right, Tarantino the Australian, an accent. <laughs> Australian accent. But I mean he's Tarantino, he can do whatever he wants. But I'm glad that he had, you know, the self confidence to step down from the role and be like, you know what, this is what's best for the film. I'm putting my Pride aside, Steve Buscemi is meant to be Mr. Pink. I'm Mm going to let him be Mr. Pink. And actually, do you want to go through each of the characters? I would love to. So, actually, the the color name aliases the concept came from the original movie, The Taking of Pelham One Two Three, which came out in 1974. In that film, the characters' names, the Heisters, are blue, gray, brown, and green. And so, Tarantino took that great idea and basically paid homage to it with this movie. And so, the first and probably the, the coolest of the bunch is Mr. White. Mr. White, played by Harvey Keitel, who's a professional criminal. He's obviously a killer, but he sort of has this like moral compass where it's like that that honor amongst thieves kind of thing. You know, He's not a monster. He's not a monster, but you yeah. could say he's a psychopath because he still has no problem blowing cops away. Like he won't like, he doesn't want to kill innocent people. And he has respect for other criminals so long as they're professional like him, but he won't hesitate to kill cops. They look – well, uh, Mr. Pink has a great line, did you, um, did you kill any real people? He says, no, no real people. So, yeah, that, that's, yeah. what, so they, that's what Mr. Pink they says. They don't even look at cops as people. So that's, I think, a diff- the criminal mentality of looking at cops as like just the opposite team, and they're not even normal people, they yeah. say. And Harvey – and uh, Mr. White, he's, you know, he's very old school. Like he always snaps his fingers to turn that lighter on He's ironically probably he, he calls himself the most professional and always is talking about bringing, being a professional, but he lets his emotions get the better of him in this film. He ends up being very fatherly and comforting to Mister Orange, even though presenting himself as the baddest meller effort in the in the room. You could say I, he ha, you could say out of all of them, except for Mister um, Orange, he's the, he's the most compassionate criminal of the bunch because of how he protects Mister um, Orange, um, especially when. Uh, nice guy Eddie and the others get suspicious of him and um, especially when Joe is like this is the guy mm-hmm. and then Mr. White is like no uh, you got it wrong Joe and he even like is willing to sacrifice his life to protect Mr. Orange so he definitely has the compassion that the others don't have And then Mr. Pink Let's talk about him since we were just talking about him. Steve Buscemi, great I love Mr. Pink because he's probably the smartest criminal And the best thief and criminal out of this entire lot Because he's always doing what's best for him To get out, get the best out of a situation Like he's the one who gets the diamonds He gets away on his own He's the one that ends up with the diamonds As he leaves the warehouse But obviously he gets cornered by the police That we can hear from the audio about what's happening outside But he's always, you know, looking for leverage He's also like a D-bag talk about how he doesn't tip at the beginning of the film but yeah. that's because he's always he's always looking for leverage in any situation that will benefit him to the best so even like him not giving up a dollar is to him like the same thing as him trying to find out who the rat is later on he's also the one who's adamant about being about the fact that they were set up and that the cops were waiting for them and also he's the only one who's like why are we in a safe house if if the cops knew about the robbery, they're definitely going to know about the safe house, so we shouldn't even be here. He's the only one really expressing that and trying to get the others to go along with him. And then, But he lets his greed get the better of him, and yeah. he forgets about the cops, which he thought were outside, which he, we find out were outside waiting for him. But he's also he, he's really funny, and I love the back and forth that he has with Mr. White because they take up a majority of the dialogue about like a, a quarter of the film in, a third of the film in. It's just them two in the warehouse going back and forth, and Mr. Pink is the only one that immediately... Immediately considers that this was a setup. He's the only one that thinks it was a setup. Even Mr. White doesn't think it really was until he's convinced of him. Mr. Blonde doesn't think it is. Nice guy Eddie doesn't think it was a setup. It's not until Joe gets there that we start. They all start talking about it being a setup. Man, it would have been nice to have cell phones back then. <laughs> <laughs> How are you gonna get in, in contact with Joe Cabot? <laughs> so, and also Pink and White, they're important. They're so important to the story because they're giving us context to what happened. Their their first conversation. After they, they leave Mr. Orange and they go into the other room, they're giving us the exposition of what happened, what went wrong, and they gave us the general idea of the entire heist. And so their their conversation is vital to the audience, understanding the entire situation. Yeah, all we ever learn about the heist is what the dialogue is between the characters, which is so interesting. Yeah. and It works really well. And also Mr. White and Mr. Pink seem to have a past, you know. Mr. Pink says that he's known Joe since he was a kid, and you can assume that him and Mr. White have worked on several jobs together because he's like, I never tell you my name, don't tell me your name, I don't want to know it, and then they even talk about, and even when he tells me he has the diamonds, Mr. White's like, good boy, that's a good boy, so they may have like a big brother-little brother relationship, but, they're, but Mr. Pink is always adamant about being professional, and you can assume that he learned that from Mr. White, who ironically is acting unprofessional. Yeah, and... Next up, uh, I would, I would, I love Mr. Orange, Tim Roth's character. Or we could go in order of how like the movie portrays it. Like, oh yeah, so we sure. go Mr. Blonde next, and then go Mr. Orange. Let's go blonde. Yeah, let's go, let's go. Start off with Mr. Blonde. And we've said before, Michael Madsen. You know, he's not the best actor in the world. Obviously, his career outside of Tarantino movies isn't very impressive. But Species is all right. Yeah, Species <laughs> is all right. But Tarantino, he has, he's perfect for Tarantino roles. There's something about Michael Madsen staying Tarantino dialogue that just works in you know even in hateful 8 you know he hadn't been in a major film for a while but Joe Gage yeah Joe Gage but he's just like perfect in a Tarantino movie there's and it's like he's he's a kind of like a lucky charm for Tarantino like Sam Jackson is but to, uh, I, Michael Madsen in this film is really terrific. It's ironic you say that because nice guy Eddie calls him a rabbit's foot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Calls yeah. him a lucky. He's, yeah. It's been nothing but good luck for us, Dad. But I will say that maybe a better actor could have portrayed the psychopathic nature of him a little bit better, a little bit more nuanced. But I still think that he did a great job as, as Blondie. Madsen has this like modern day outlaw to him or something like that like you could even say this is like kind of like a modern western in a way yeah but he has that like crazy cowboy quality to him that's like deep down he's like he's also like has this reserve quality where he's like a dog just waiting to like bite someone or something like that and he's just being held by a collar or a leash and then he's so soft spoken yeah at any moment he could be unleashed he has that like inner like there's something behind his eyes that works so well i think that you never see really But until he starts torturing that guy. (laughs) But the cool thing about Mr. Blonde, his name is Vic Vega, which obviously we can assume is he's the brother of Vincent Vega from Pulp Fiction, played by John Travolta, obviously. And Mr. Blonde's wild card hes an absolute sociopath. He enjoys killing. He enjoys torturing. He's the one that made the cops who were already there waiting for them come into the bank, I mean, to the jewelry store early because he just started going on a killing rampage. He has a strong past, we can assume, with Nice Guy Eddie because of that little wrestling scene they have with each other. And We can also assume that when he went to prison, he did four years for Joe Cabot, we can assume that prison messed him up because even though he's a free man, he's out, he's finally on this job that he wants to do, he's... Killing people for no reason, really. He doesn't have to kill people. He doesn't have to torture this police officer. He doesn't have to try to light this police officer on fire. He doesn't have to cut off his goddamn ear. But maybe you know, every day of his life in prison was so bad, it was like a, a life-or-death situation in, in those stakes. That's what he's addicted to. He's addicted to this chaos, and he's creating chaos whether he wants to or not. I think that uh, Vic has always been like that. and in, in the past, even before he was locked up, I think that he was um, killing and torturing people. But maybe secretly, secretly. Like, yeah. We sec- can obviously, Joe and obviously, nice guy Eddie didn't know about. Obviously, it. because they think he's a stand-up guy as a criminal. Um, so I think that he always kept that part about him secret because he seems to be so like so experienced. And it's like in prison, it's not like what? How are you going to torture people? There's not many ways of torturing people. But he seems to have duct taped people's faces multiple times, and like seems to know exactly what he's doing, what he wants to do. And so I think that he's actually had a past of being a complete sociopathic murderer. Um, Throughout all his life I think you're probably right Because I think the shot where The first bit of torturing he does Is he loads the gun cocks it And then points it at the cop And the cop's face He's like moving around Like don't shoot me in the head Obviously that's probably What anyone would do If their gun was pointed at them No matter how many movies they'd seen And how tough they think They'd act in that situation But he's just laughing and giggling Because you can assume He's probably done that a bunch of times, and you obviously can't have a gun in prison. So yeah. you, you're right. Maybe he was like this before prison, before working with Nice Guy Eddie and Joe. And it's great um, suspense and tension built up because you you hear from the other guys how he went on a murder rampage in the jewelry store. And then when Nice Guy Eddie takes Pink and White out to, to move the cars, and then he leaves these two guys alone with Blonde— you're like, oh my god, what's gonna happen? <laughs> he immediately jumps off the car. He's like, alone at last. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> You're it's like, like, oh my god. Within a second, yeah. he's like, finally, I can torture this guy. And he was waiting for it. And Vic is actually. He uh, Tarantino confirmed that he is Vincent's brother. And Tarantino even was planning to do a Vega Brothers movie. It would have called. It would have been called Double V Vega, and it would st- start the the Vega Brothers. But um, I would love to read like an outline of like yeah. a story he has for that. Yeah, exactly. But uh, Madsen and Travolta got too old to make to, to do the film he for what he had in mind and so he just never made it. He just moved on to other things. Yeah. That's too bad. That would've been cool. I would have definitely checked that out that, for sure. That would have been incredible. That yeah, would have been awesome. Um how about we move in into our inter- intermission Interesting intermission. Intermission intermission, <laughs> intermission. And then we'll talk about Mr Brown, Mr. Blue, Joe and nice guy Eddie. Sounds great man. All right, Sounds so great. let's start with our movie quote competition. This one's for me. Allegedly in your situation, for you, would be concurrently improved if I had two hundred dollars in my back pocket right now. Retainer, retainer, retainer. <laughs> it's uh, Ben Affleck in Good Will Hunting. <laughs> retainer. Chucky. All right, I have a, I have a quote. This is from Tevin Garvey. Okay, there's two people talking, so I'll, to help you get it. Uh, person one, hello, it's a phone call. And then person two, sorry, that was my son and the nanny. And then the the nanny says, "Nanny, I prefer child technician." <laughs> um, dude, just do the dialogue. Don't say like the other S- stuff. Sorry, that was my son and the nanny. Nanny, I prefer child technician. That sounds really familiar. Oh man, I don't know. Jerry Maguire. Oh, yes, yeah, the kid's the the guy who's uh, nannying the kid. Help me out. That's right. <laughs> help me help you. <laughs> Who's coming with me? I'm I'm dating this great guy who <laughs> really loves my kid. <laughs> Something like that. It's <laughs> yeah, tragic. tragic. Yeah. He loves the kid more than her. It's so sad. No. Yeah. No. he loves her by the end. No, he by the end, but like yeah. he loves the kid more than her. I wouldn't say that. I think that he was in love with I think he just just in love with the boy. Being loved. I think he's in love with the, raising the child and being a father figure. No. I don't think so. Well, maybe we should do an episode on we it. Should. We should. We can hash it <laughs> <We> out. <should. laughs> All right, moving on to guess this movie release year. From dusk till dawn. 1998. Six. Damn it. The year six. The year six. God damn 1996. 1996. Your turn. I have, I actually have another uh, quote from a fan that I forgot. Oh, let's do it. This is from Co-Mama is Cool. Show mama is Cool. <laughs> <laughs> So, if we are done measuring dicks, can you have your people show me what you found? Oh, what is this? Um, it's a female character. Correct. It's, it's, is it alien? No, it's not aliens. No. Alien? No. no. It's not um, an old movie. Oh, uh, crap. What is this? Um, say it again. If you're done measuring dicks, can you show me what your people found? Crap. I can't. Can't think of it. Lois Lane and Man of Steel. Yeah. Amy Adams. Yep. It's when when she goes to, where is it, like Antarctica? The, the glacier. Yeah. Damn. All right. Here's my movie release year Notes on a Scandal. 1988, 2006. I was <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> like, what movie is that? <laughs> Kate Blanchett and Judy Dench. Yeah, yeah, i it. You never seen it? No. Oh, it's awesome. Kate Blanchette plays an elementary school teacher who starts an affair with a student. Oh, I think I remember seeing it. It's Taylor's really movie. good. I've never seen it. It's really good. I, that was a straight up guess. I'm like, <laughs> sounds like a movie from the nineties and eighties. <laughs> movie pop quiz time. How many Tarantino movies is Samuel L. Jackson is in bonus, can you name them all? How many is he in? Okay. Pulp fiction. Jackie Brown Kill Bill Voice narration Is he Kill Bill 2 in a voice narration? Yeah Kill yeah. Bill 2 Not Kill Bill 1 Kill Bill 2, okay Um, he's Well, he's not a voiceover He's Rufus yeah. the piano guy Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah And then um, Django 4 Hateful 8 5 And then He's not in Death Proof not in Glorious Bastards, is he? I don't yeah, know. He's, in, he's in Glorious Bastards. He does a narration for the German guy. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Igor Stiglitz, Snig- or what's his name? That character, I can't remember. Well, he also, he does multiple voiceover narrations. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for Hugo Stiglitz? Hugo Stiglitz, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also the film Nitrate. Yeah. I love that. I love that scene. So, is that your final answer? No, you're smiling. <laughs> <laughs> we got six so far. That is my, yeah, that's my final answer. You win. Yeah. Nice. Good job. Thanks, man. (laughs) Your turn. (laughs) Cate Blanchett has a cameo in what popular comedy? In what popular comedy? (laughs) Movie. Comedy movie. Um... It's Cate Blanchett day. Yeah, it's Cate Blanchett day, except for Man of Steel. I feel like is a is she like heavily make up? She doesn't I mean she's not heavily make up, but it's she's not she's, it's hard to tell it's her. I'll give you that hint. I don't know. Hot fuzz. Who's she in hot fuzz? She's his uh she's Simon Pegg's uh girlfriend. Oh the, the CSI person. Gotcha in the in, yeah, in the, yeah. In the suit. Man, that was good. Yeah, yeah. Got me. Stump me. Nice. Yeah, I guess that's yeah, that's for sure a cameo. Oh yeah, it's hundred percent a yeah, cameo. For sure. All right, uh who we got for haters of the week? We got or unsubscribes. We or, got a we bunch. Got a- we got a bunch. It was a good week. Uh, Avatar, a clip that I posted, how it was filmed. And then Lee M.C. Davis. Wow, imagine posting a clip about something interesting, unsubscribed, <laughs> referencing that uh, hater from last week. And then Jonathan Smith just wrote in one of our, our videos, hater of the week comment. <laughs> and then he also wrote, damn, this guy is definitely the hater of the week. <laughs> so I had, to, I had to give it to him. <laughs> and then Nicholas Bergstrasser. On your uh, Dune po- post about all the all your Dune books, he wrote, "You read paperbacks? unsubscribe. <laughs> hey, the Art and Soul Dunes are hard hardcover. Yeah, yeah. that's true. They're expensive, man. They're like thirty dollars a pop for that, hardcovers. That's what I said. I'm like, those are pricey books. I mean, yeah, the binding gets ruined on the on the paperbacks, but yeah, yeah th- I'd rather buy an eight nine dollar paperback than a thirty dollar hardcover oh, yeah, every time. Hundred percent. And then um, my favorite uh comment from the week was, during our Oscar episode, Carpio, you know Carpio, two, two, oh, Yeah, two, three, three. Two, three. my ultimate hater, but fun, a fun hater. But uh, they wrote, you two look like knockoff Colin Jost. <laughs> that's actually pretty accurate. <laughs> you have gotten that a lot. <laughs> I like cool. that one. It's pretty good. Just t- two white guys with dark hair that's combed really well. <laughs> well, for me, it's combed really well. <laughs> right now, mine is just yeah, He's got a haircut if yeah. you haven't seen it. He, I cut it. He cut his own. Yeah, he I did a my... short, tight fade. It looks pretty good. Look at that thing. Yeah, yeah, not bad, not bad. All right, now for our support of the week, we have a great five-star review from Kenan Scott. This is really, really sweet. So, best podcast out. These guys have something really special. Not only is their knowledge and analysis of film great, but the podcast is actually entertaining. Their greatest strength is that they go over the best movies. They have incredible taste and understand details about filmmaking and storytelling that continue to impress me. More than that, they are funny and keep you engaged for super long periods of time, which is pretty hard to do. The library of films they have seen is vast, but they know that their fans want, they know what their fans want and they cover the best of the best their appreciation for greats like scorsese nolan fincher etc is music to my ears on their longer podcasts, is where they really shine because they get to dive in the details of a film and analyze it from different levels i can't say enough about these guys i get excited when they put out content love you guys wow keenan thanks keenan you're, you're the so best well, that's a nice review i'm getting teary-eyed over here i always get teary-eyed <sighs> goosebumps makes it all worth it. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it all worth it on this day in film history today is january 31st in 1960 61 the misfits premieres in new City, which was the final film for both Clark Gable and Marilyn Monroe. 2003, The Recruit was released, and happy birthday to Minnie Driver, Kerry Washington, and Justin Timberlake. I'm not the mole. (laughs) (laughs) Al Pacino. (laughs) The Recruit's low-key a good movie. movie. Jeremy Renner's in that, too. Is he? Yeah. Who is he? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of SWAT. Yeah, it's Colin Farrell. Yeah, Yeah. Colin Farrell and Al Pacino. Colin Farrell's in both. Yeah, he is in both. Yeah, yeah. So it's Pacino yeah. and Farrell. Yeah. yeah, the recruit's good. Yeah. Uh, streaming recommendation for me is Amazon Prime 127 Hours. Really great film from Danny Boyle based on a true story of a guy who gets trapped and cuts his arm off with a little knife. It's a pretty crazy movie. Insane. My recommendation is Mother, which is a Bong Joon-ho film on Amazon Prime about a woman whose son, uh, special needs son, gets arrested for murder and convicted. And so she tries to prove him innocent on her own. All right, let's get back into Reservoir Dogs. And before we talk about Mr. Orange, I want to talk about Mr. Brown, Mr. Blue, Joe, a nice guy, Eddie. So Mr. Brown, played by Quentin Tarantino. And he's funny. He's a wise guy. He's, he's, he's cynical. And, you know, he's probably like – Tarantino's like that in a little bit in real life. First thing you hear is his voice. Yeah. And Mr. Blue, he's – just there. <laughs> he has a great joke at the diner. Yeah. But but Mr. Brown is like the, the voice at the diner. He tells that great story of his interpretation of Like a Virgin by Madonna, which Madonna ended up loving Reservoir Dogs, but sent Tarantino her latest album that had come out after the, the film with a note saying, it's not about D, it's about love. Mm. Like, love the film, Quentin. That's not what it's about. <laughs> That's funny. And then Joe Cabot, played by Lawrence Tierney, Actually, absolutely hilarious. The scene where he's just roasting the guys and during the, the meeting about the with the going over the planet and everything, that, that whole monologue is very funny. It seemed like half of it was kind of improvised in a way. Mm-hmm. He was actually a real criminal, Lawrence Tierney, and he brought real auth- authenticity to the role. Uh, Tarantino filmed all of his scenes first, and he only lasted like a week of filming because by the end of the week, everybody on set hated Tierney. It wasn't just Tarantino, and they got in a ton of fights. In the last 20 minutes of the first week, they had a big blowout that got into a fistfight, according to Tarantino. And then Tarant- Tarantino fired him on the spot, and the whole crew burst into applause. But fortunately, he had already shot all of his scenes well enough. Oh, that's awesome. And before we continue, it's finally 2022. Now is the time to finally get your act together. Get yourself groomed up for the new year, new you. And for Valentine's Day coming up soon, I recommend getting the Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer from manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping on your entire order today from manscaped.com. They just launched their ultra premium collection, which is the ultimate wet goods bundle, including deodorant yes, actual deodorant from manscaped, body wash. Two-in-one shampoo and conditioner, a hydrating body spray. And this package also comes with a free set of Manscaped lip balm. Like we've been telling you, Manscaped's going to start covering all of your grooming and day-to-day needs, for- fellas. So get on that ASAP. And Valentine's Day can go both ways for your significant others. So if you want to get them a gift, this is... Valentine's Day, get them at manscaped.com Get them the ultra premium collection Lawnmower 4.0 Use our coupon code RAIDERS of the lost At checkout for that 20% off coupon And free shipping worldwide Are you a fan of movie posters? If you are, there's no better place to get your posters Online than at Movieposters.com Use our special promo code RAIDERS10 To get 10% off your order today Movieposters.com is the best place To get your posters online They have all sorts of sizes, framing backlighting, whatever your poster needs are, they got you covered, as well as a gigantic selection of pretty much every movie and TV show you can think of. They have it at their arsenal, high-quality printing. Our set is decked out with these amazing posters that are good friends of our show, and we couldn't recommend them enough. Again, head on over to movieposters.com and use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. I I wonder if maybe he would have been in an, another scene or two if it, if it hadn't maybe, been fired. Maybe. It could have been possible. Yeah, maybe. But maybe fortunately he, Maybe he had to rewrite some stuff too. Fortunately, low budget, this was a 30-day production, so he's like I'll get all Tierney's scenes done first, get that over with. From what I read, is Tierney wouldn't learn his lines and was just very difficult to work with and it was just making the scenes impossible to do. And you got to think like Tarantino they only have so much money, and like everything's riding on this. It's just, he's an unproven director. You like, have to get these scenes done yeah. today. You have this set for the day, exactly. Like a lot of people aren't aware, but like a, a movie, uh, especially low budget, they're filming in less days because they have less money to film. So they're they're filming like maybe in this movie they're probably filming like well not this movie because the scenes are very long, but an, an independent film with a low budget, they're they're shooting like three or four scenes a day like that many scenes per day, and even in one location. Also, so it, it what's a really cool thing about production is, so say um, there's a location in a movie that takes place in different different parts of the movie from like different air, parts of the timeline from like the opening or near the third act or whatever. Uh, the way a production does it is they film every scene in that set, and then when all those scenes are done, then they'll move on to the next set. And that's something that people maybe don't realize when they watch a movie because, you know, not everyone's been on a movie set or been in production. So oftentimes, like a, a, a cast might film like the climax of, of a movie and like the like an early scene of the movie in the same day because it takes place in the same location. So that I, they for this, they filmed all the warehouse scenes, probably in the span of like a couple of weeks, all of that dialogue and all of that runtime. It was probably filmed in a very short period of time, I'm guessing. And then Nice Guy Eddie plays Joe Cabot's son. We can assume they have like this, like, this. they're gangsters, you know? They're like kind of like this little mob in Los Angeles, and Nice Guy is Do you the think son. they're like an Irish mob? Maybe. Nice guy, they, he they, they seems yeah, Irish, they but they seem also Irish. he's got a wicked hairy chest, and like yeah. Irish people aren't usually hairy, Like, I, I guess. Know. He's got the, how many Irish guys have you taken shirts off? Of? <laughs> <laughs> it's a fact. Dad is hairless. <laughs> guys have a piece of body hair on him. <laughs> it's crazy. Then we're half Italian. I, I look like Henry Cavill without the, the jackness. But uh, <laughs> but nice guy, Eddie. Gotta get Joe, the shirtless Cavill reference. <laughs> Gotta get the Cavill reference. Because we already brought up Dune, so now we have to bring up Henry Cavill at some point. <laughs> nice guy, Eddie. Super funny. Um... He, he like we said earlier, like Christopher Penn's one of the best performances in the entire movie. He does a diff- bunch of different emotions, and that great Mexican standoff at the end of the film is awesome as well. And then we have Holdaway, who is Mister Orange's undercover trainer. Very fun, very cool character helping teach Mr. Orange how to be you got to be like Marlon Brando you got to be a great actor if you want to be undercover and all that and we we get the Commode story from the That's Mr. a terrific Orange. sequence. Yeah. So yeah. that those characters going back and forth is awesome. Oh also so the the Commode story that's the only moment of like magic realism that Tarantino has ever put in his movies is that moment when he's telling the story in different in different scenes um Freddy and he's getting better and better The within each location. location And then he's finally telling the story to the gangsters. And so we see him in the club with the gangsters talking. And then it cuts to him in the imaginary story. And so it's not that that's magic realism, but magic realism is when, by the end of the story, it goes to Tim Roth, the camera's on Tim Roth, and he's telling the story inside of the bathroom with the cops, and he's actually like saying it. It's not like it's narration. And so that's actually a form of magic realism that Tarantino, I don't can't think of him ever using magic realism in, in any other one of his movies, but it's really cool in this moment to see him he's like telling the story in the bathroom in front of the cops. That's something he's never done since, I believe. Yeah, so speaking of the Commode story, let's get into Mr. Orange, who might be the most interesting character of the film, played by Tim Roth who at the time didn't want to audition for this role, but he went out with Harvey Keitel and Quentin Tarantino. They got drunk, and they convinced him to audition right there for them while they were all hammered. And he got the role and ended up doing it. And so I like Mr. Orange a lot. Also goes by Freddie. That's his real name. And he's got this, like, he seems really young, like maybe new on the force. Mr. Orange, he just seems like a young guy, like new on the force, maybe like early 20s. He's still kind of like a kid. He's got the Silver Surfer poster on his wall. Um. And you think, you know, when you when you're watching the movie, that he's a good guy, he's a protagonist, he's a hero. You think that the whole time because the first half of the movie we don't know who the undercover cop is, and then we find out going through his flashbacks, well, going back in time to him when he's being recruited by by a holdaway, and then learning the commode story, infiltrating Joe's gang, we learn oh, he's the undercover cop, he's the good guy, he's the hero. But it actually is a lot more complicated than that because. You know, just because he's the undercover cop doesn't mean he's the protagonist. And we've, we he's shot in the back of the car. He's, he's going to die. He's bleeding out if he doesn't get help. He seems to be sacrificing himself in order to stop this gang, to stop Joe Cabot. But Mr. Orange becomes a criminal himself. He kills an innocent woman. He shoots her to death when they're taking her car. So he himself probably has gone too far in the undercover world. He's kind of become a crook himself. He's this—he's a murderer now. He kills Mister Blonde too, which you know that seemed to be justified. But he still—he's now killed two people: one innocent, one who probably deserved it. And I think it's—it's like it's a, a, a line between hero and villain. And I think he's more of a villain by the end of the movie for sure. So you would say that him killing that woman wasn't self-defense because he got shot. She's an innocent woman. He's an undercover cop. Just because Yeah, yeah but if someone pulls a gun on you and shoots you, you don't think that it it gives you the right to shoot them. If he's an undercover cop, no, in in but this just situation, self, self-preservation, well self-preservation is different than than law. You know, you're trying to carjack somebody. You're an undercover cop. You're supposed to be helping people and you end yeah. up killing someone who's innocent. Yeah, I don't but I I wouldn't say that he's a villainous because of that. He didn't I have think, to kill her. Well, I, I think it was like an, an instantaneous thing where he gets shot, so he just fires back. Oh, for sure, but yeah. I still think that that act makes him a villain. He killed somebody, an innocent person. Well, She's defending herself, not I, him. I don't. I wouldn't say he's a villain, but he definitely... You can tell he regrets it because of how he like pauses after he does it, and he can't believe he did it, but I still think... I wouldn't call him a villain for that, I wouldn't say. But I would say he's not a protagonist because... Maybe, if he wasn't so far undercover and starting to like these guys, maybe and bonding with them, maybe he wouldn't have killed her. Maybe he would have like just let her kill shoot him. and maybe Mr. White would have killed her instead or something like that. but still he's they're car- trying to carjack somebody. He gets shot. It, just because he gets shot, that I don't think that gives you defense while you're carjacking someone. Like, oh, don't worry, you can shoot her; it's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know I, I, mean? I, I know I, what you're saying. I think so. I think it. I, I don't, don't think, think it makes him a bad person. I think it's just like a split decision, like reactionary. Oh, like, yeah, me getting shot. I'm. That's what I would say. I still think it makes him not a protagonist. Though. I'd say it's too. Yeah, I'm not saying he's a hero, but I'm just saying he's not like a villain because of that. S- but still, it's ambiguous, kind of what he is at this point. Yeah, I agree. Is it is not... blending. This movie maybe has it has no hero. It has really... Mister Pink's who's, the hero? Who's the protagonist? <laughs> Mister Pink. Mister Pink. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He's like the he, He's the best character. I think he's the best character. Mister Pink. Oh yeah, I think he might be the best par- character as well. Yeah. But I also think just the, like the ambiguity of Mister Orange and has he become a crook and a criminal by the end of the film? I would say no because he's he's literally dying, bleeding out, so close to death, and he's still. When he after he kills Blondie and him and the other cop have the conversation, he's like, he's he proves that he's willing to die to bring down these criminals. So maybe, he's definitely not a criminal. Maybe that's his repentance that he's doing for killing that woman. Yeah, I think so. But um, I just think that you can't even you can't compare him to the criminals because he's sacrificing his life to take them down. Still killed somebody though. He did. He did kill someone. Killed somebody innocent. It's a it's a complicated situation. It's a great, that's why it's such a great character. Yeah. But it is a great point where yeah, after he shoots her, he's like, yeah, he's oh, like man. Oh. Like crap. I'm a someone. bad guy now. I'm one of them now. That's why When I see that, I'm like, he's kind of like one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's
1: a, a good way. point.
0: In a way. It's a good point. Not completely, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. But I love him with Holdaway, the commode story, and watching him become a con- undercover. Because, like we said earlier, if we show this, f- if he made this film chronologically, that's what we'd be seeing first. We'd be seeing him with Holdaway. That would be the first thing we see is him not even meeting at the, him diner. In the cafe. No, and before yeah. that, it'd be it'd be before that. It'd be the commode story. No, meeting in the cafe with Holloway, telling him that he's in with the crew. No, that's after. That's after he does the speech for them, so that that would happen before he meets Holdaway. Oh yeah, you're right. So you're right, the you're first right, you're scene, right. the first thing you would see is maybe it would be Joe Cabot with with uh, Vic and nice guy Eddie. It'd be maybe that, and then with and then it would no because that that's like a last minute. Oh, he's, got, he's already so, got five. So you're guys. right. It's definitely it's definitely Freddie, and it, it would be um the the rooftop the rooftop up, the code yeah. story. Yeah, that would rooftop. be the first scene of the movie if it was chronologically. Yeah. And then it would be it'd be an interesting opening. It it wouldn't be that bad, but then it would just get boring. The third act when it's seventy minutes of the warehouse, because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these scenes they're fast. It's yeah. good dialogue, and I love this the commode story that you're talking about. In Holdaway's, like, gotta be a great actor. You gotta be Marlon Brando. It's mm-hmm. it's really great. Yeah, yeah, that's totally that's a great point. Like in the flashbacks are what really. Make this movie super special and so Unique combined with not showing the Actual heist plus things that are happening On the, on the outside the surface of the film Little, little tidbits like K. Hey, Billy Super sounds of the 70s weekend is <laughs> so Fun you know he's like the DJ The the radio jockey he's just like talking about The music that's about to play and mm. everyone's Talking about it when they're talking about the pop culture music At the opening of the film like this guy is like I'm, I heard that song that I hadn't heard since I was a kid and I finally understood the, what happened At the end and who killed who in the song and, Everyone's making fun of him yeah and there's the, a reference to Jackrabbit Slims that you hear—it's it's amazing. Yeah, an advertisement. Yeah, right? an advertisement for it. And speaking of Jackrabbit Slims, I think that I think that Mister Pink is the same character as the Buddy Hollywaiter that Steve Buscemi plays in Pulp Fiction. It could in that and it could be that. So he got away with the diamonds, but then the cops corner him and arrest him. Mm-hmm. That's what we hear in the background at the end of the film. So it sounds like yeah, before they the cops storm the warehouse, and also um, more evidence that. Tarantino couldn't afford having a whole friggin' SWAT team. He didn't <laughs> even show them. He just showed the reaction of Kaitel and uh, Mr. Orange right there, and that's it. That's just smart filmmaking. But so you could imagine that Mr. Pink, whatever his name is, he got arrested and served time, and then when he got out, he could only find a job working as a waiter at Jackrabbit Slim's, playing being the Buddy Holly waiter, which would come full circle with amazing irony because of how he said that he doesn't tip waiters. Because he he doesn't believe in it, and ironically he, he ends up becoming a waiter. A waiter. Yeah. So I think that's what his story. I think it's the same character in <laughs> Pulp Fiction. That's a really really good point. I never thought about that. It's I think it's a wax museum. Uh, I think it's a wax museum with the pulse. <laughs> <laughs> but the lack of action that you see was what makes the stylized action when it happens so intriguing and exciting. Because like you just said, he doesn't show the police. But it's an important moment. It's great that we don't see the police in this standoff. It wouldn't have worked as well because that's also a really emotional moment where that's where Orange confesses to Mr. White that he is a cop after the Mexican standoff. And so also the lack of action, not seeing the heist and seeing all this because there's only – there's kind of minimal action in this. you know, And it's dispersed throughout the film just selectively. And one of the most exciting action sequences of the movie is the fist fight between Mr. Pink and Mr. White, where, you know, Mr. White knocks him on the ground and he starts kicking him. And, like, that's the one of the most action-heavy moments of the film as well. And also— One of the most iconic shots, too. Yeah, that great shot where yeah. they're pulling guns on each other while Pink's on the floor and White's standing over him. And when Mr. Blonde is tor- torturing the police officer, it's, it's graphic but also not graphic. Like, we don't see the ear cutting off, but— Tarantino pans the camera away, but we know it's happening, and I still churn. I'm like, oh, I can't I can't watch this and he's not even showing you what's happening. Yeah, you don't have to see it. And I wonder if it could be two things. He could have designed it that way from the get-go, or they couldn't figure out a good prosthetic that would accurate that would believably show him cutting the ear off in camera. It could I be think, one of those two I think things. Maybe it would be too much gore for that time. I, I, I don't think, think anyone wants to see that in a in that yeah, you know. I think but also like film uh, I think that maybe they couldn't find a prosthetic that looked believable to be cut, is what my guess would be. So rather than showing it, he pans the camera away, and then they cut to the just the uh, prosthetic of the ear already exposed. Maybe. That's my guess. Maybe. I, I think the latter. Cause because he doesn't really do stuff like that with his filmmaking. But he also doesn't fully show gore like that specific. Like, watch me slice this guy's Now hand. he does. Well, now he he'll show someone's g- baseball a baseball bat breaking a head in. Yeah, that's different than <laughs> I think. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Or castrating That's the bear Jew <laughs> Okay you know what? I take that back He shows plenty of gore Either way it worked better There's blood spraying Everywhere it I- worked I- Have you seen Kill Bill Yeah Okay <laughs> No I know I've seen <laughs> Yeah. I just meant Chopping like... heads off <laughs> Crazy 88 fight <laughs> Listen, he doesn't really like to show that much gore happening. No, no, I said specific gore, like a close-up of an ear getting cut off. I think that's different than, than Beatrix slicing arms off, which is sick. <laughs> <laughs> but my guess for that shot, because he's never done that with his cinematography besides this, like, putting a cam- tan- panning a camera away. Are you sure about that? I'm pretty sure I'm not 100% but I'm pretty Someone's, sure I can hear someone typing in the comments right they're, now. No, they're scrubbing through all his movies right now. But it's just so, <laughs> it's it's not something he he would usually do. So my guess is it's practical why he did it. They couldn't find a believable prosthetic to cut. Either way, it worked really well. Yeah, that scene is terrifying when he's it pouring really the water on him. Yeah, well, it's gasoline. Gas- well, I'm sorry, gasoline, but water gasoline. in real life. I was, I was thinking practically in, on set, it's it was not water. about the money. It's about sending a message. Everything burns. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a bunch of iconic shots like we talk about where pink's on the floor with the gun and white's with standing up over him. There's also a great split diopter shot in this yeah, movie yeah. where it's when Mr. Orange wakes up after he kills blonde and the cop is looking at him and they're talking. And the split diopter shot is where um, a partial lens is attached to the front of the camera's lens, and it creates two different depths of field where they're both in focus. So you can get something very close to the camera in focus and something far away from the camera in focus. And it's excellent shot. This has been done in a lot of movies that maybe you haven't noticed. Like Spielberg's done it a few times. Um, is is in um, – uh, it's done, yeah. It was done a lot in the in older movies. So it, it's yeah. a really great effect. If you, you usually use it like once in a movie. It's awesome. Yeah, you'll notice it because the, the in the middle of the frame, it's super blurry. Yeah, It's, it's in Carrie. Yeah. yeah, it's in Carrie, yeah. But De Palma used it. Actually, Brian De Palma used it more than any other filmmaker uses and used it. I think he used it in Scarface, too. Yeah, he uses it in all of his movies. It's one of his trademarks as well as uh, because he loves that idea of two different things from different distances being in focus, two different subjects. He also, Brian De Palma, is famous for using split screens in his movies. He's always done split screens as well. Um, but anyways, it's a great shot, but you'll notice it if you look for it because the middle is super blurry. And it, I, But it is— I think uh, Story, Toy Story 4 has done it too. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just done on a computer. Yeah, but it's still cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's cool. But it's interesting that he chose to do that shot because you can't even—it's just the back of the cop's head as opposed to like being another subject's face looking. Showing yeah. to cameras So I thought it was An interesting choice For using that shot As opposed to Maybe a different setup For cameras The trunk shot Is obviously A great iconic Trademark of Tarantino's He did that in multiple films and Driving did, the cars Yeah driving the cars But even if he doesn't Do a trunk shot In the movie He does that 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 look, that look looking up POV. angle. Like yeah. So like for example In Glorious Bastards At the end of the film Like this might just Be my masterpiece That's mm. like the trunk shot Of that movie Yeah good point What is does Kill Bill there's a trunk shot at the in Kill Bill one. At uh, the one where Sophie's in the trunk. Yeah, is Kill Bill name, one. Sophie? Yeah. yeah. But Kill Bill 2, I'm trying to think. Is there a trunk shot? Well, um, yeah, when she's getting buried by Bud. Okay. And yeah, they're yeah. looking down at her. Yeah. They, they were, it's not a trunk shot, but they're looking it's at her the on angle, the angle, you know yeah. what I mean? doesn't yeah. always happen in a trunk. It's the POV. And there's one also in Jackie Brown and Sam L with yeah, Chris yeah, yeah. Tucker. Yeah, that's, That show. So he's that's one of his trademarks for sure. Death Proof. Oh, I'm trying to think in Death Proof what it is. There's got to be one. There's got to be one. I can't, I can't... But anyways, another yeah. trademark is the Mexican standoffs that he always puts in a lot of his movies, like at the end of the movie when yeah. they're all pulling guns on each other. Um, this is iconic in The Office as well. Reference to this yeah, movie. reference to The Good and the Bad and the Ugly. Obviously, in Glorious Bastards, there's a Mexican standoff. They're all over the place. Oh, yeah. He loves his, his Mexican standoffs. They're not in every movie, but in most of his movies, he has one. Yeah. Tarantino puts so much of himself in his movies, especially his early movies, because like all the pop culture references in his movies... It's pop culture that he loves. You know what I mean? I think that's what makes his tone so unique because it's not like filmmakers trying to capitalize on mainstream stuff or like trying to get as many things that a mainstream audience would like. It's like these, these are things he likes, the like comic books and old movies. Motherfucker, it looks like the thing. thing. Like, no, like it's such a unique style. It's like it's like if I made a movie and referenced only the things that I liked, It's that's what he does. And that's why it works so well. Yeah, what would, what would you reference? Like movie scores, <laughs> Tom Brady, Tom Brady, like Patriots, Tom Brady, Martin Scorsese, Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's. This <laughs> kid loves Trader Joe's chicken parm. <laughs> oh yeah, he <laughs> makes chicken parm and chicken piccata once a week. Trader Joe's at least once a week. day. <laughs> He's always putting the chicken piccata on the toast. That's oven. a great, great meal. It's it's, it's, it's <laughs> seventy grams of protein. Takes five minutes to make. It's delicious. Perfect meal. Great post workout meal. It's Listen to the passion he has for Trader Joe's. It's so good. It's, it's, it's no, no, right. it's, no, it's affordable. For yeah. the price, it's so good. Yeah. Well, I always say that Trader Joe's is the ultimate place to shop if you eat every meal alone for your entire <laughs> life. <laughs> it's accurate. Single serving meals. <laughs> my single serving friend. Wow, lots of film references. Clever. Today. How's that going for you? Being clever. <laughs> all right. You got anything else? I'm pretty good. Yeah. I'm trying, I'm going through my notes. Yeah, it's just... You know, this is an excellent, excellent movie. I think we covered just about everything. Yeah. Um, Yes. So, you got any fun facts, or did you sprinkle them in there? I sprinkled them in throughout. I'm scrubbing to see if I have any, but no, you said them all. Yeah. But this is one of my favorite crime movies. It definitely was an unbelievable debut by Tarantino. Pulp Fiction was his big movie, but this was... You know the stepping stone to make Pulp Fiction happen. Yeah, got him the budget, got yeah. him the actors for Pulp Fiction. Yeah. You know he got he got recognition around the world. This was at Sundance mm-hmm. Film Festival. I mean, people went saw in theaters, even though it was such a low budget. It performed poorly is because it didn't have marketing. Yeah, it wasn't marketed. They didn't have a budget for like putting posters everywhere. Yeah, but still made just under three million dollars, which is solid for one point. I mean, one point two, one point five million dollars. But again, Reservoir Dogs, imagine, amazing to debu- be. Imagine debut. how much it's made probably in 30 hundreds of millions yeah. just from the posters that yeah. dudes Merch. have in their college dorms merchandise DVDs and Blu-rays and VHSs every every guy had money. a poster of Scarface yeah. and Reservoir Dogs and like Nirvana in their room you could say this could be if you counter if you factor all that in it could be one of the most profitable films ever made if yeah, you factor maybe. all that in for a, a budget well, under 2 mil well then you'd have to factor that in for all those other movies that have a huge return on investment yeah, well, I'm doing this. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Reservoir Dogs. Make sure you leave a comment on the YouTube version of this Reservoir Dogs episode so that you can be entered in to win a free Tarantino poster from our friends at MoviePosters.com. And if you don't win the poster, just get one with our discount code Raiders, 10 for 10% off. Thanks so much for tuning into this Around the World. Take care, everyone. <laughs> Raiders of the Lost podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.